Former President Trump prepares to appear in court tomorrow to face new charges that he conspired to change the 2020 presidential election. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up, we'll talk with Trump attorney John Loro about the latest indictment against the former president. Also, this uh, a group of congregations in Sacramento that worked together when immigrants were flown from Texas to California. Plus, rising water temperatures along the eastern seaboard are affecting the migration of black tip sharks. They are coming much earlier and they're staying longer or migrating back through later. It's 401. First, a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. New indictment, new arraignment. Former President Donald Trump due to appear in court this week to face new serious allegations about his attempts to reverse his 2020 election loss and encourage a 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Kerry Johnson. Former President Trump is set to make an initial appearance in federal court in Washington, D.C. on Thursday. And this case has been assigned to Judge Tanya Chutkin, an Obama appointee and a former public defender who's been known as a tough sentencer on many other January 6 defendants in the past. Part of what resulted in the 45-page indictment, former Vice President Mike Pence's contemporaneous notes about his conversations in the days leading up to the January 6 attack. Pence says he was a target for refusing to go along with Trump's insistence he help overturn the results as Congress worked to certify them. In Indianapolis today, Pence told reporters he did what the Constitution required. Sadly, the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And while I made my case to him of what I understood my oath of the Constitution to require uh, the president ultimately, uh, ultimately, you know, continued to demand uh, that I choose him over the Constitution. Pence is among several Republicans campaigning for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Despite the serious charges that Trump characterizes as a witch hunt, the former president remains the front runner. The U.S. is expected to join other countries in pulling some of its citizens out of Niger in the wake of the military coup. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Some U.S. citizens have already left Niger on European flights. While the scramble to the exit continues, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller says the U.S. embassy remains open. We intend for it to remain open. We remain committed to the people of Niger and our relationship with the people of Niger. And we remain diplomatically engaged at the highest levels. That's something that will continue. The West African regional group ECOWAS is trying to pressure the coup leaders to reverse course and restore the country's president, Mohamed Bazoum. The U.S. says hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid hang in the balance. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Sell-off on Wall Street after Fitch ratings downgraded the U.S. from AAA to AA+. Here's NPR's David Gura. Fitch ratings put the U.S. on notice in May during a protracted fight over the debt limit. And while the country avoided a default, Fitch says it's eroded confidence in fiscal management. Stock markets slumped worldwide, but the market reaction has not been as turbulent as it was in 2011, when S&P Global Ratings downgraded the U.S. from AAA. Separately, shares of the chipmaker AMD fell by more than 6 percent after it reported earnings that disappointed Wall Street. Still, the company's stock price is up around 70 percent year-to-date. Apple and Amazon update investors on their recent performance on Thursday. David Gura, NPR News, New York. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA and its largest workers union have reached a new collective bargaining agreement. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. It took months of negotiations for the T and the Boston Carmen's Union Local 589 to reach the deal. At a press conference today, Governor Maura Healey said the contract will increase wages by 18 percent over four years. This is the largest pay increase for tea workers since the 1990s. Union President Jim Evers said the deal is meant to appeal to new hires and help retain current workers by addressing some longstanding employee issues. Improving employee restroom access, expanding bereavement leave to include domestic partners, and clarifying language pertaining to assaults on our drivers. The MBTA Board of Directors will meet tomorrow to ratify the agreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Unionized nurses at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Merrimack Valley approved a strike authorization today that allows their bargaining unit to call a one-day strike against the Methuen facility if contract talks don't produce an agreement. The nurses say their current pay and benefit package is 45 percent lower than nurses at the hospital's Boston campus, and they say the hospital's latest offer only addresses that by about half. Dana-Farber says it's put forth a generous package and it remains committed to reaching a fair and equitable agreement. A Cambridge and Somerville-based food organization is bringing farm-fresh food to homeless shelters. Food for Free has partnered with Waltham Fields Community Farms to pick up produce every week and bring it to agencies that feed unhoused individuals. The group's operations manager, Mary Reed, says they picked up almost 600 pounds of food from Waltham this morning. Including zucchini, radish, squash, lettuce, among other things. And they went to different organizations to pick up more food or to give uh, other recipients food. And then they ended up at the Pine Street Inn. A program at the Pine Street Inn trains people to enter the restaurant industry. Roxbury's Nubian Square has a new monument to honor black veterans. It's located in the Edward Gordeen and African American Veterans Memorial Park. Gordeen was a general in one of the Army's last racially segregated battalions during World War II. He was also the first black person appointed as a superior court judge in New England. In our weather forecast, Clear skies tonight, mild, lows around 60 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with highs in the low 80s. Friday, showers likely. We could see heavy thunderstorms throughout the day on Friday. Temperatures in the 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, D.C. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. What's four-legged, furry, and often serves up a quick little mood boost? These sanctuary jurisdictions are part of the reason we have this problem. (laughs) Looks like we have the wrong story up. Okay, hold on one second. We are going to start a different story than dogs. We'll come back to dogs later. We're going to start with migrants. Okay, let's do this. So 36 migrants from Latin America arrived in Sacramento, California in early June, but it was not their chosen destination. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent them on chartered planes from El Paso, Texas, to make a point about immigration policy. 
The migrants all claimed to have political asylum and arrived in California confused and with nowhere to go. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports on the people who welcomed these strangers to their community. Rabbi Mona Alfie was busy preparing for evening Shabbat services at Congregation B'nai Israel when her phone rang. It's not the ideal time to call a rabbi on a Friday afternoon, but we have a situation and we could use your help. The situation was that some Latin American migrants had been left outside an office building in downtown Sacramento. Help looked like making sure that every person had a safe place to stay, making sure that they had food to eat and had clean clothing. These people had been put on a plane without anything, not even a change of clothing, a toothbrush, not even knowing where they were going. In the following days, the story became clearer. Someone in El Paso, at the behest of the Florida governor, had recruited these 20 and 30-somethings with the promise of jobs and legal help to board a plane. But after dropping them off, that person disappeared. Alfie says the religious imperative was clear. Our most important holiday is Passover. And from that holiday and over and over in the Bible, we're taught Because we were strangers in the land of Egypt, we have a special obligation to help the stranger. 36 different times in the Torah, we are commanded about loving the stranger, helping the stranger. There should be one law for the stranger and the homeborn. Since the arrival of the 36 new Sacramento residents, a coalition of congregations, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, have come together to help them settle in. There are costs to this work, time, energy, and money, things nobody planned for. On a recent Thursday afternoon, the migrants gathered at Parkside Community Church to pick up English-language workbooks. Among them was 21-year-old Ofer from Venezuela. He describes a harrowing journey of more than two months walking, jumping on buses, hitching rides. Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. Ecuador, Colombia, Panama. Crossing border after border to reach the U.S. Guatemala, Mexico, and here the United Ofer asked that we only use his first name because he fears for his family's safety. He says he hopes to work to make money so he can help his mother survive the economic and political chaos of Venezuela. And one of the people determined to ease Ofer's way here is Gabby Trejo, who rallied some 30 congregations to help the migrants. Whatever the intention was of why they were sent here to our community, the community has responded overwhelmingly with love and support. Trejo is with the faith-based community organizing group Sacramento Area Congregations Together. The work with the migrants has allowed us to create a vessel for people in the community who are tired of seeing the humanity and immigrants being stripped away, that desire a world where people are seen with dignity and respect. This is exactly what Jesus would teach us to do. Jocelyn Moore started attending Parkside Church in the third grade. Now, the mother of six who works in education is spending her summer helping the migrants learn English. We're supposed to welcome refugees and strangers. I mean, it's all about hospitality and welcoming and not maybe the whole narrative of building walls and keeping people out. But this hospitality has its costs, costs borne largely by these congregations rather than the city or state governments. And Moore's pastor, Rajiv Rambab, says that kind of hospitality is central to ministry at Parkside Church. Congregational life, communal life, gives you a vehicle to get good at this sort of thing. And it gives you a familiarity and trust with a team of people 
we're ready to spring into action when the need arises. Rembob says offering beds and meals and clothing and quarters for laundry lies at the heart of Christianity. We as people of faith just know our calling, one of the things we're mandated, is to love our neighbors. At Trinity Episcopal Cathedral downtown, that love takes the form of donated shoes and clothing. Wearing a new-to-her pink and white striped shirt is 34-year-old Andrena from Venezuela. She also asks that we use only her first name because she still fears for her safety. Andrena says throughout her journey to the U.S., police demanded money to let her pass, money she didn't have. Stories like that, fleeing home without cash, arriving in a foreign land, spurred Trinity Cathedral member Shireen Miles to action. Today, I took three young guys out to enroll in English as a second language classes. One of the other things I've been working on recently is rounding up bicycles. So the migrants can get around town. But Miles is also thinking beyond the immediate needs of her three dozen new neighbors. She's exhausted by the human cost of polarization over immigration. Why don't the governors of the red states sit down with the governors of the blue states and the federal administration and try to figure out a better solution for what is a big challenge for all of us? And instead of just dropping off groups of human beings in some place where they had no idea where they were going. Miles has worshipped at Trinity Cathedral for nearly three decades. And recently, some new banners showed up in the sanctuary here. Matthew Woodward, dean of the cathedral, reads one of them aloud. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that's Micah 6, 8. The migrant's arrival reminds him of a story from the Gospel of Matthew. Where Jesus says to the disciples, you fed me, you gave me water, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you sheltered me. And then everyone around him, because he's talking in riddles, says, what are you talking about? When did we do that? Uh, We never did that. He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Which illustrates, Woodward says, the centrality of caring for migrants. I think some of the politics dehumanizes people. And I can confidently say that the faith partners that I work with really, really want to invest people with dignity. The undignified way these strangers arrived in Sacramento saddens Woodward. But, he says, as a person of faith living in a polarized world, the gospel transforms compassion into courage. And I will try not to be drawn on the politics, but if caring for your neighbor is a political act, then it's a political act. And it's still the right thing to do. The cost of discipleship, says Woodward when neighbors are in need. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Sacramento. And now a question. What is four-legged, furry, and often serves up a quick little mood boost? That's right, dogs, like my floofy little Mickey. Well, as part of our ongoing series, Weekly Dose of Wonder, NPR's Maria Godoy explains how even short, friendly interactions with dogs can be good for our health. I started pondering the power of dogs during one of my daily strolls around my neighborhood. Almost invariably, I'll run into at least one person walking their dog. Hi, how you doing? Can I have a lick? This dog, a tiny thing named Freddie D, is happy to comply with a sloppy kiss of my hand. Oh, look at that. For me, it's a silly moment of joy. And that got me wondering, could these short interactions petting other people's pooches 
actually be good for me. Absolutely. Animals are beneficial to our mental and physical health. That's Nancy G. She's a professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University. She says in recent years, research on the health benefits of dogs has exploded and the quality of the evidence has improved. She says there's growing evidence that levels of the stress hormone cortisol drop in people after just 5 to 20 minutes spent interacting with dogs, even if it's not their pet. We see increases in oxytocin, so that feel-good kind of bonding hormone also increases. You know what I love about this research is that it's a two-way street. We see the same thing in the dogs. Now, of course, not everyone's a dog person, and the therapy dogs used in research are screened for friendliness and good behavior. There's also evidence that brief bouts of puppy love may also help us think better. G collaborated on a study that found school-age kids who had regular, short exchanges with pups in the classroom had reduced stress and improvements in their ability to stay on task and block out distractions. And G says those benefits lingered. We actually saw that one month later, and there's some evidence that it may exist at six months later. So what is it about hanging out with dogs that helps us chill out and focus? Megan Mueller studies the psychology of human-animal relationships at Tufts University. She says dogs prompt us to experience the world more like they do. They're experiencing their environment with wonder and awe all the time. Mueller says watching dogs sniff the grass or explore the world around them cues us to pay more attention too. They sort of pull you out of your phone and into whatever environment that you're in. She says there's some evidence that the act of actually touching a dog might be an important part of their calming effect. One study done in Canada found that college students reported less stress and reduced feelings of homesickness after brief interactions with dogs. And that effect was much bigger in those who actually got to pet the animals. She's currently running a study that's finding similar results. Some of the initial research has shown that that physical touch might impact our nervous system in a way that's beneficial. But it's not just how we cue into dogs that makes the relationship special. Nancy G. of Virginia Commonwealth University says over thousands of years of domestication, dogs have developed a wondrous ability to read us. They really can connect with another human being, and they do it in a very unassuming way. And they do it without the ability to use words. As my dog-loving nine-year-old recently told me, dogs have a way of speaking to our hearts. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, how warmer waters are changing the migration of black-tip sharks, and they're moving further north. On Wall Street today, stocks were lower. The Dow was down more than 340 points to close at 35,282. In local business news, a San Diego-based life sciences developer has agreed to purchase the last undeveloped property in Fort Point Channel Center project. That's a nine-story lab building that the Boston Planning and Development Agency approved earlier this year. The Boston Business Journal reports the price tag, $23.5 million. The sale of the largest newspaper group in Maine has been finalized. The nonprofit group National Trust for Local News purchased the newspapers for an undisclosed price. It includes five daily and 17 weekly publications. It's 19 minutes past four.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional, local, long-distance, office, and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. You can tap and listen to WBUR anywhere this summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on stories you might have missed. You can download or update the WBUR app now. Forecast says clear skies tonight, lows around 60 degrees, sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. Looks like thunderstorms on Friday, 71 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including foundations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Former President Donald Trump is expected to be arraigned tomorrow on charges that he participated in a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election results. This is the third criminal indictment for Trump, but the first tied to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. One of Trump's defense attorneys in this case, John Loro, is with me now. John, thank you for making time, and I understand you may have a weaker dying cell phone, so I hope it will last for the duration of the no, conversation. No, I think it's going to last, and, and nice to meet you by phone this afternoon. Good, thank you. So some nuts and bolts questions first. Will Trump appear at his arraignment in person tomorrow? Yes. The arraignment is under a summons, which is a voluntary way of um, requesting the presence of a party before the court, and obviously the president will comply. So virtual is not an option. He will be in person. It can be an option in federal court, but in this instance, it's going to be in person in Washington. Would he like that? Are you advising him to do that? It's really up to the court, and also it depends on Secret Service and the United States Marshals. Um, Certainly, we have no objection to appearing in court, and that's the way that it uh, is going to roll out. In previous interviews, you have said that you would like a trial moved out of Washington, D.C., which, as you pointed out, voted heavily for Joe Biden, and perhaps moved to West Virginia. Why West Virginia in specific? Well, we're looking for a more diverse area that has um, a more balanced uh, political uh, jury pool. Um, you know, the country's very, very divided politically right now. This is a very divisive um, indictment. It goes to issues of free speech and, and political activity. So we're looking for a jury that will be more balanced. And uh, Virginia was a, a, excuse me, West Virginia was a state that was more evenly divided. And we're, we're hoping for a jury that doesn't come with any implicit or explicit bias or prejudice. So it makes sense to go to a place like West Virginia. The special counsel, Jack Smith, has said this will be a speedy trial. Do you have any objection to try to bring this case to trial before the November 2024 election? Well, speedy trial rights belong to the defense, not the government. The government has an obligation to turn over a lot of material and a lot of information, which they've not done yet, but they will. Um, You know, the special counsel has, or the Biden Justice Department has, Uh, been investigating this case for three and a half years. 
And uh, it just seems to me, in fairness, that we should have enough time to study the documents, be able to um, interview witnesses and, and look at the evidence in its totality, address a lot of legal issues with the judge as well. So what, what we want is a just trial, um, not simply a speedy trial. There's no need to railroad any defendant in the United States. And we're hoping the Justice Department will recognize that justice is more important than speed. Do you have any sense of whether you could be ready for a trial before the November 2024 election? Well, it depends on what information is provided. This indictment literally lists um, election issues in seven states. So we'll be litigating a, a case of unprecedented magnitude. I've been involved in large white-collar cases uh, for many years, over over 40 years of practicing law. This is going to be one of the biggest cases uh, in the history of the United States. It, it could it, The trial could last six months or nine months or even a year. So to, to expect that counsel is going to get ready in 90 days for a case like this is um, quite absurd. And this is looking quite ahead. But if it does go to trial, do you anticipate that Trump would testify in the case that you would advise him to? Well, we have to see what the evidence is. But we're in an election cycle. The Biden administration decided to bring a, an indictment against a political opponent in the middle of a campaign. And uh, the thought of President Trump um, having to uh, spend his time at trial instead of um, actively debating and talking about the issues against his political opponent is something that I think the judge is going to consider. But, but more importantly, you know, we have, a, we have a challenge ahead to get ready, and there's a massive amount of information, and we're entitled to look at it. I want to talk a little about your legal strategy. Could you give us a summary of your legal defense to these criminal charges? Well, it's not, it, it, you know, it's not a big surprise when you look at this indictment. It doesn't really say much other than President Trump was exercising his right to talk about the issues and, and advocate politically for um, his belief that the election was, uh, was stolen and, and was improperly run. Um, he got advice from counsel, very, very wise and learned counsel, on a variety of constitutional and legal issues. So it's a very straightforward defense that he had every right to advocate for a position that, that he believed in and his supporters believed in. And this is the first time in the history of the United States where a, a sitting administration is criminalizing speech against a prior administration. It's really quite unprecedented. Um, and it really will politicize the criminal justice system, which is um, terrible to see. So prosecutors are saying that these are criminal acts, but you're making the argument that former President Trump was exercising his constitutionally protected right to free speech. Is that the case you plan to make? Exactly. And free speech encompasses political advocacy, which often involves acting on that free speech. So, for example, if I were to take a position that I believe um, or I don't believe that service that young men should register for, uh, you know, service. Um, there's a Supreme Court case right on point that says I'm entitled to do that, even though I am advocating a certain action or inaction. It's still protected by by the First Amendment. So I know you have said that you believe Trump was genuinely concerned about the integrity of the election, and the prosecutors will presumably argue that Trump was lying when he said the election was stolen or may have been stolen. I heard a previous interview you did in which you said that prosecutors would have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he had corrupt intent, which they will never do. Is that what you see as the government's legal burden, as proving that Trump didn't really believe the election was stolen? It's embedded in the statute 
that they have to prove corrupt intent under 18 U.S.C. 1512, which is the obstruction statute. And corrupt intent means that you um, don't believe uh, in not only that you don't believe in the position that you're advancing, but you're doing it for a corrupt purpose. You're doing it to obstruct a government function rather than a truth seeking function. And here, what we will argue to the jury and will win is that President Trump was arguing for the truth to come out in that election cycle rather than the truth to be denied. Even at the end, when he asked Mike Pence to pause the voting, he asked that it be sent back to the states so that the states in exercising their truth seeking function could either audit or recertify. Quick final question uh, before we lose you. If the government can prove that Trump lied or that he had corrupt intent, will you still argue that's free speech? Well, political speech covers even information that turns out not to be true. So it's all protected by free speech. But at at the bottom, the government will never be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, as I said, that President Trump did not believe in the righteousness of his cause. But if they can, will you say it was free speech? Well, the only way that they can even attempt to prove it is at the end of a trial. I'm going to be arguing that throughout the trial. That is John Luro. He's a lawyer for former President Donald Trump, representing him in the new criminal charges filed yesterday. Thank you again for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stephen Milhauser about his new collection of short stories. In our weather forecast, clear skies tonight. Lows around 60 degrees, mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the low 80s. Friday looks like showers, heavy thunderstorms possible. Temperatures in the 70s on Friday and for the weekend. On Saturday, the rain should clear up in the morning, giving way to mostly sunny skies and highs will be around 80. Sunshine on Sunday with temperatures in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open. A new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. In the last year, musician Post Malone's life went from rock star to girl dad. Going on tour is really hard because she did 10 steps the other day. And her mom sent me a video, and I was like, oh, I really, really, really wish that I could have seen that. The hit singer on fatherhood and his intensely personal new album. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, a lawsuit against former President Donald Trump is getting closer to trial. Today, New York's Attorney General's office said it's ready to move forward, as NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports. The civil lawsuit is filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James, who is seeking $250 million and sanctions that would effectively cease the Trump family and Trump organization's operations in New York. The lawsuit claims that Trump committed fraud by inflating his net worth by billions of dollars in order to get richer. The Trumps and the company have denied wrongdoing. 
After a three-year investigation, James filed a civil lawsuit against Trump, the Trump Organization's executive team, and three of his children last September. The case is scheduled to go to trial October 2nd. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. Poland's government is accusing Belarus of violating its airspace with military helicopters. Belarus, of course, an ally of Russia in its war with Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz tells us Poland is responding by deploying troops along its border with Belarus. In a statement, Poland's defense ministry said it was sending additional forces and resources, including combat helicopters, to its border with Belarus. It claims Belarusian helicopters violated Polish airspace at a low altitude. The Belarusian military denied any violation and accused Poland of making up the accusation to justify a buildup of troops. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz. NATO allies, including Poland, Lithuania and Latvia, have been on alert since large numbers of migrants and refugees began arriving at their borders from Belarus a couple of years ago. Concerns have only increased after Russia's former Wagner mercenaries arrived in Belarus after their failed mutiny in Russia less than two months ago. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street, ending one of the worst trading days in months. The Dow down about 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Maura Healey says the indictment of former President Trump is not all that surprising. Trump faces federal criminal charges for his alleged role in attempting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. On today's Radio Boston program here on WBUR, Healey encouraged Massachusetts residents to read the indictment for themselves. It's a really sad commentary uh, on Donald Trump and, and what has happened here. Um, the indictment is not surprising. It is, in my view, absolutely appropriate. Um, and you know, the Department of Justice will, will do what it needs to do. Healy says the indictment also underscores the importance of registering and voting. Governor Healy plans to sign a $375 million transportation bill this week. Her office says the governor will hold events in Lowell and Amesbury to sign the measure into law. The bill provides money to cities and towns for road and bridge maintenance. Massachusetts and four other New England states are asking the operator of the regional electric grid to focus more on environmental justice. The states want ISO New England to create an executive-level position to help make sure that the clean energy transition is equitable. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. Keeping the lights on and managing electricity markets have traditionally been ISO New England's main considerations. But state leaders say the public health and environmental impacts of electricity generation and distribution matter too. Murray Bajani is with the grassroots campaign Fix the Grid. She says creating this new position at ISO New England is a good first step. We can't successfully overhaul our electric system for the future that we need without taking into account environmental justice, without having that expertise in the room. ISO New England says it will work with the states on this issue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is awarding $10 million in grants to local communities to help offset costs associated with casinos. Springfield received the largest grant, $1.5 million, for a parking infrastructure project near the MGM Springfield Casino. Malden also received more than $500,000 to allow public access to the Malden River. The time is 435 We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
In our forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the low 80s. It's 71 in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In the 45-page indictment against former President Trump, federal prosecutors lay out their timeline of Trump's alleged conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. What he did, when he did it, and who he did it with. But... On that last point, who? Prosecutors don't explicitly name any of Trump's associates. Instead, the indictment simply refers to them as co-conspirators one, two, three, four, five, and six. For more on the possible legal strategy here, we turn now to Leslie Caldwell, former assistant attorney general of the criminal division at the Department of Justice. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So why not name these co-conspirators? What do you think the thinking is behind that? So, of course, I don't know. But what (laughs) I would guess is uh, they're trying to keep the case as streamlined and straightforward as possible for a variety of reasons, Um, not the least of which is the more people who are co-defendants in a case, the longer the case will take to get tried. Right. Um, So there's obviously some belief and desire to, to get this case across the finish line in a timely fashion, which if there were um, six defendants instead of one, probably would not happen. Of course. Okay, well, how likely is it that any of them would cooperate in the coming weeks or months with prosecutors, you think? So I think sometimes you name unindicted co-conspirators, you, you list that there are unindicted, co- unind- sorry, unindicted co-conspirators because you either they already are cooperating or you hope they'll cooperate. I don't think either of those things is true here. Mm-hmm. We've seen no sign that any of these people, um, assuming that we've identified them correctly, are cooperating or even thinking about cooperating. Okay. I also think that the government might not actually even want them as witnesses, um, but that's obviously not my judgment to make. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you a little bit more about that, because I'm curious, by listing but not naming these co-conspirators, does that make them less likely to testify for the defense if there is a trial? Because maybe they would be worried about their own possible legal jeopardy. Do you think that was also a consideration? I would suspect not. Um, I think they probably all are already, already worried about their own possible legal jeopardy, because they all know what activity they engaged in. Um, so I don't think that this is any kind of an effort to keep people away from the witness stand. They obviously will have Fifth Amendment rights, which they can invoke if they're called by the government to testify, uh, which I don't think they will be. Um, but if they voluntarily testify on their own for the defense, then obviously um, they will put themselves in further peril. Okay. Though, I mean, given that you assume that prosecutors wouldn't want them to take the stand anyway and that it's not likely the defense would call them as witnesses, does the fact that these co-conspirators, the fact that they were not named, does it make it any more likely that Trump himself 
might have to testify? You know, I think that that's, uh, that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Um, it's his instinct, it seems, in most circumstances to, to give his version of things. Um, but this is a very dangerous setting in which to do that. Um, it would be subject to cross-examination by very experienced prosecutors, and he would put his own safety in further jeopardy if he were to go down that path. Right. So how likely is it that his attorneys would actually want him to testify? You think if you were representing him, you would advise him not to? I would say that most attorneys would advise him not to testify under these circumstances, partly because uh, the story that he has to tell, at least as far as we know it, appears to be consistent with the government's theory of the case. Mm-hmm. And also, I think he's probably an extremely difficult person to control in terms of what he'll actually say, regardless of the amount of preparation that you might have beforehand. Okay. I want to return to your original point that by not naming these several co-conspirators, it was a way to streamline the case. Could that therefore increase the chances that all of this will be wrapped up before November 2024? What's your sense of the feasibility of the timeline? So I think that realistically, it could be very much wrapped up before then. Um, I don't know, I don't have enough of a sense of the district court in D.C. to know what their kind of normal cadence is in terms of how quickly things go to trial. I know in some districts, they have what's called a rocket docket, where things go very quickly. Other districts, things drag on, sometimes for years. So I understand, I don't know this judge, but I understand that she's very well regarded. Um, and I expect that the case will be moved along at an appropriate pace. Okay. And then finally, just in the 30 seconds or so that we have left, you know, we have some basic biographical details about the various co-conspirators and their various roles. Was any particular description a standout to you in terms of them getting described in this indictment? What struck you? So I think the one that was most disturbing to me as a former DOJ lawyer was the description of co-conspirator four, which I'm assuming is Jeffrey Clark, uh-huh. uh, the former Justice Department official. Okay. I think that, you know, just reading what he was accused of doing, it really goes well beyond right. anything I'd ever seen. Leslie Caldwell, former Assistant Attorney General, thank you. Thank you. Ocean temperatures off the coast of southern Florida are reaching record highs this summer, and that warming trend is affecting some migrating sharks, which are in search of cooler waters. Yvonne Zumtobel with member station WLRN has more. Like snowbirds, black-tip sharks migrate to South Florida every winter to enjoy the warmer waters. Known for the spatter of black on the tips of their fins, these sharks weigh about 50 pounds, and can get six feet long. They're prey to a lot of larger sharks, so they're pretty much behave like prey. You know, they're very skittish. So they're not the biting type, says Beth Bowers with Florida Atlantic University Shark Lab in Boca Raton. She's been studying black-tip sharks for the past eight years. Research from the lab shows the number of black tips coming to South Florida during the winter months is down, and that's because the ocean's temperature is up. So between Boynton and Palm Beach, it used to be a really high density of about 2,200 sharks per square kilometer. Then it starts going down over the years. About a decade ago, they counted over 12,000 black tips migrating to South Florida waters, 
and the most recent survey shows numbers below 2,000. And so our question was, where do they go after they leave here? Bowers attached acoustic telemetry tags to the sharks, which uses sound to track their movements. She found that more sharks hang out off the coast of central and north Florida these days before they move further north to their mating grounds off the coast of South Carolina. They used to show up there at the end of April. Whereas this year, I think we saw the first ones in March, which is much earlier. That's Brian Frazier, a shark researcher with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. They are coming much earlier and they're staying longer or migrating back through later than they have in the past. And of course, that's directly tied to water temperature. Black tips have been found even further north, as far north as Long Island, New York, during the summer months says Toby Curtis. He's with the National Marine Fisheries Service. So we know the black tips are around. We know fishermen uh, catch them from time to time. He says black tip sharks are becoming more common off Long Island in the summer and are just another shark species to look out for. For NPR News, I'm Yvonne Zumtobel in Boca Raton. This is NPR. The coming-of-age comedy Reservation Dogs from FX returns for its third and final season today, debuting two new episodes on Hulu. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins says the low-key comedy about a group of Native American teens searching for their place in the world has an unassuming brilliance that captivates. As someone who came late to watching Reservation Dogs, I found myself momentarily confused early in the third season when restless teen Bear Smallhill, backed by his friends, tries to confront his deadbeat dad in a dumpy apartment. Fortunately, Bear and us viewers have a little help from William Knifeman, the spirit of a warrior who died at Little Bighorn and apologizes for the hectic pace of the first few minutes. Oh, hey there. Hey, I know, I know, I know. I threw a lot at you in that first three minutes, right? Yeah. But you have to trust me. I'm an indigenous storyteller to the bone. I'm like a, I'm like a Greek chorus with a loincloth. Viewers who saw last season know Bear and his friends, the spirit calls them res dogs, left their home in Oklahoma for California, fulfilling a dream once held by their friend Daniel, who died by suicide. But despite some disasters on the trip, Bear is resisting going back, egged on by knifemen who only Bear can see and hear. This is your walkabout, your inner journey. Can you please just tell me what to do? Oh, you know, I can't do that. I can only give you cryptic aphorisms. I don't like it either, but I got to report to the Spirit Council. This is the wonderful language of Reservation Dogs, which offers an offhandedly funny and unexpectedly touching look at aimless youth searching for purpose. But they also live in a world where Native American mysticism and folk tales have a reality and power. On one level, the characters struggle to understand absent parents and unpredictable adults. Teeny, an aunt to one of the res dogs, comes to California to bring them home and drops a little knowledge in the process. She tells her niece a secret. Adults are more messed up than kids, and it doesn't get better as you get older. Well, think about yourself when you were 11. How did you feel? Do you remember your thoughts? Kind of the same as it does now? Exactly. I feel the same as I did when I was your age. Except when you're an adult, you have baggage, and the baggage gets heavier. But the most powerful moments in the first four episodes feature Bear, separated from his friends. He's on a journey that puts him in touch with the Deer Lady, a spirit we've seen before, who takes vengeance on those who've harmed women and children. 
This time, we get a look at her origin story, where she was taken from her family as a girl and brought to a terribly horrific religious school run by nuns who stripped the children of their culture and beat them. In one dreamy flashback, we see how the nuns, who only spoke English, sounded like monsters to a girl who couldn't yet understand their language. Do any of them speak English? If they did, they let on like they didn't. This is where Reservation Dogs excels. It tells stories rooted in the reality of indigenous life, its brutal history, and its boundless culture, which reaches far beyond the reservation into the world. Critically acclaimed as the show is, it may still be one of the most overlooked comedies on TV today. So be sure to catch its third and final season now to watch a singular voice on television spin stories featuring the kind of compelling, authentic characters TV rarely finds time to notice. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening here on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in the next hour of All Things Considered, how the indictment of former President Trump might affect his 2024 presidential campaign. In our weather forecast, clear skies tonight, lows around 60 degrees. Tomorrow it'll be sunny and nice, highs in the low 80s. For Friday, rain though, showers, thunderstorms, lightning, temperatures in the 70s on Friday. And right now our weekend forecast looks like the rain will clear up Saturday morning, giving way to mostly sunny skies and temperatures around 80 degrees. For Sunday, we should see sunshine with highs in the 80s. It is 71 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas Automated PowerView Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. When we focus exclusively on race and ignore the class issues, we're missing a huge part of what makes society unfair in America today. That's from liberal academic Richard Collenberg, who says true equality means looking at class more than race, not just in college admissions, but in everything from jobs to housing. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Stephen Milhauser has a strange way of looking at the world. In his new collection of short stories called Disruptions, one is about regular-sized people who live alongside other people who are just two inches tall. The tiny people sleep on folded handkerchiefs, and they're at constant risk of injuries from chipmunks. In another story, a town develops a preference for darkness, for shadows, for shades of gray. Blonde women suddenly want to turn their hair jet black. Stephen Milhauser is with us today to talk about his latest work. Thank you for making time for us. Hi. Stephen, I used the word strange to describe your view of the world, but I actually wrestled with what the correct adjective should be. Are your stories weird? Are they unconventional? Are they twisted? Are they fantastical? I'm wondering what word you would use. (laughs) I would probably evade 
all adjectives as carefully as possible. I think, I think strange is actually fair enough, so long as it's also clear that my stories are filled with deliberately precise so-called realistic details. I like beginning as a rule in the real world and then veering off in a direction that some would call strange or fantastic. That is a great description. And it's making me think of an interview I found that you did with NPR in 2015. You said, I'd like the idea of beginning with something common, ordinary, and introducing something somewhat unusual, and then pushing, 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 and seeing what happens. Would you walk me through that process with one of your stories? I'm thinking about the one called Green, where a town starts replacing its lawns with tiles and cobblestones, and it eventually gets out of hand. How did that unfold in your mind? I had the idea of a town becoming obsessed with a certain way of behaving. I got at it by starting the opposite way, getting rid of all green things and then having them desire more and more and more. And I simply wanted to push this as far as possible and see where it took me. Not that towns do that with green or do that to this extent, but that these kinds of habits, in fact, take over communities and towns, groups of people, whole civilizations, as they push in unusual directions. You know, when I'm, when I'm writing a story, I'm not thinking about its possible abstract meaning. I am simply following a kind of tendency or urgency within the story and working it out. You talked about your interest in obsessions, and I, I actually scribbled that note down when I was reading, that you focus on obsessions, on fixations, on extremes, on trends or fads gone mad. Is that something you think about when you observe actual life? <laughs> it's a very good question. I don't actually think about that when I observe actual life. When I observe actual life, what strikes me is how little is known about even a simple experience like walking down the street, which I do a lot. And I once long ago read a book on the eye and human vision. And the author pointed out something rather obvious that nevertheless struck me as extraordinary. He said, the human eye is constructed in such a way that we can never see any object entirely. If you look at a cube, you see only three sides. This is hardly surprising to any fifth grader. But to me, when I read it, it seemed like a revelation. <laughs> My God, of course, everything I look at is only half of what is there. That is my sense of life in general as something wondrously filled with all sorts of things that we don't know. You really do think about the world in ways quite different than many other people. Are you, are you aware of that? Well, as I was speaking to you, I thought, this, sound, this sounds strange, as if I'm a philosopher pondering things <laughs> over and over again. I'm not really that way. This happens within story. Something takes place when I get an idea for a story. 
by the way, the, the impulse to a story, the thing that makes an idea for a story feel urgent and necessary is a mystery that I do not even pretend to understand. It's more primitive than the kinds of ideas that we're discussing here. Mm. I was torn about whether to be honest with you about this, but sometimes I would finish some of your stories and be unclear what it was supposed to mean. Do all of them have a meaning? I think that's a very fair question because I put it to myself sometime. And whenever I finish writing a story, I'll show it to friends, then I'll put it aside for a while. After several months in a drawer, the story will come out and I'll read it again. And I will sometimes, not always, but sometimes ask myself, what does that mean? Do I like the idea that I, do, I can't put my finger on exactly why I ended that way? And in certain instances, I may enter a revision. And in other instances, I'll think, no. What I wanted to be clear is absolutely clear. And if it moves into some territory that I don't entirely understand, that's a gift of the story, and I accept it. It's all right. It means the story isn't, isn't exhaustible. And so long as I'm not using that as an excuse for a story that, that has gone awry in some way, I actively like the fact that there is some mystery, even to me, the author, lingering at the end of the story, as if that justifies my sense of the mystery that drew me into the story in the first place. I love that answer. So if I was scratching my head a little bit at the end of reading some of them, I shouldn't feel bad, is what it sounds like you're saying. No, no. And you, you should put it aside and then return to it. Uh, <laughs> you know, several of your stories actually left me feeling slightly unsettled, a little, little viscerally uneasy. Is that the effect you go for? <laughs> if, you, if you have to go to your medicine cabinet, um, <laughs> I will feel guilty. And, and it wasn't I, that I bad. Pay, I will pay for that medication. <laughs> but unsettled in a way that is not just irritation is fine with me. A story that just makes you feel soothed and satisfied, you might as well watch a, I don't know, a rom-com on TV. If a, story, if a story makes you question certain things that you've taken for granted, I think that's, that's ideal. It shows you that the world is not necessarily more disturbing, but more complex than you had assumed. And that, I would argue, is a good thing. That's Stephen Milhauser. His new collection of short stories is called Disruptions. Stephen, thank you again for talking with us. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work, with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Sony Pictures Classics with Shortcomings, a new comedy directed by Randall Park with Justin H. Min as a film geek who seeks an ideal relationship when his girlfriend leaves for a New York internship. 
starts Friday, only in theaters. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, a federal jury has recommended a death sentence for the man convicted of killing Jewish worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. We are continuing to cover the indictment of former President Trump and his scheduled court appearance tomorrow, so keep listening. It's 5 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wilbur, with comedian Mike Birbiglia this holiday season on his Christmas Parmesan tour. New shows added December 9th to 23rd. Info at thewilbur.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Attorneys continue to pour over the indictment of former President Trump before Trump's court appearance in federal court in Washington tomorrow. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, how the indictment might affect Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. Also, a federal jury has recommended a death sentence for the man convicted of killing Jewish worshipers in Pittsburgh in 2018. And Treasury officials say there has been little fallout so far from the loss of the U.S. government's AAA bond rating. Plus, NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts marks the 50th anniversary of hip-hop this month. It's 5.01. First, a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The latest indictments against former President Donald Trump stemming from his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election are not dissuading many GOP voters NPR's Brian Mann reports from upstate New York. This part of New York State north of Albany voted heavily for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. The Republican congresswoman who represents this area, Elise Stefanik, has described these indictments as part of a witch hunt against the former president. Tom Tro, who lives in Port Henry, New York, voiced anger at these latest criminal charges. I've read everything. I've followed everything. Okay. It's politics and it's politics. So when you say it's politics, let it's me just politics. have... It's politics. I mean, you know, if you can't understand that... It's politics, and it's worse, and it's just the way it is. Trump's election lies have been debunked repeatedly by the media, the courts, by congressional probes, and by Republican officials. But many conservative voters here say they still trust Trump and view other sources of information as corrupt. Brian Mann, NPR News, Port Henry, New York. Following his indictment on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election, former President Trump is due to appear in court in Washington, D.C. tomorrow. Multi-count indictment handed down by a special grand jury yesterday cites actions surrounding the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Trump's campaign has called the charges reminiscent of Nazi Germany, something Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin says seems more like projection on the part of the campaign. It's a kind of moral dyslexia represented in that statement right there uh, because it was precisely a an authoritarian attack on our constitutional democracy which is being prosecuted 
by the special counsel. The Maryland Democrat was the former Trump impeachment manager and played a key role on the January 6th committee, whose report served as a basis for some of the charges laid out in the latest indictment. U.S. Treasury officials say so far they're seeing little fallout from a downgrade in the government's credit rating. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Fitch rating agency stripped the federal government of its AAA status Tuesday. In announcing the downgrade, Fitch cited big government deficits and what it called a steady deterioration in governance over the last two decades. That was typified by the showdown this spring over raising the federal debt limit. While House Republicans and the Biden administration struck a last-minute deal to avoid a default, the agreement did little to address the government's long-term fiscal challenges. Those include financing entitlement programs such as Medicare and Social Security. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen blasted the rating agency's move. Yellen says the U.S. economy is still fundamentally strong, adding people all around the world view treasuries as a safe investment. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. That ratings change did clearly worry Wall Street, though. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 348 points today to 35,282. The Nasdaq fell 310 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. There's a sharp divide in the Republican Party when it comes to the latest criminal indictment against former President Donald Trump. WBUR's Anthony Brooks spoke with some political observers in New Hampshire who say there's little evidence that the new charges will change the 2024 presidential race. Fergus Cullen, a former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, says the new charges should disqualify Trump from running for president. I mean, it should indicate to everyone that President Trump should not be anywhere near a public office again in his life. But Dave Carney, a Republican political strategist, doubts these latest conspiracy and obstruction charges will weaken Trump's support. In the primary, it has zero impact other than energize more people that are sympathetic to Trump and support Trump. But it continues to divide the Republican field. Candidates like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson have been harshly critical of Trump, while Ron DeSantis calls the indictment further evidence of the weaponization of the Justice Department. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Governor Maura Healey is asking the Biden administration for more support in helping immigrants in Massachusetts. Healey says an influx of people looking for work and shelter is beyond Massachusetts' capacity. Among other things, she says the federal government must help streamline work authorization processes for migrants. She told Radio Boston today that the Healy administration is already beginning some of that work. We have lawyers who are going out, meeting, connecting with migrants to get them processed for work because some people are already work eligible. They just need to be processed. So we're going to we as a state are going to take that on and try to expedite. This summer, the state set up an emergency shelter for migrants on Joint Base Cape Cod. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey is introducing legislation to make hospitals greener. The bill calls for $105 billion in federal funding to help health facilities reduce emissions and be more resistant to extreme weather events. That includes high winds, tornadoes, floods, wildfires, and heat waves. Three Dartmouth police officers are recovering after being exposed to toxic chemicals today. It happened this morning when officers went for a well-being check on a resident. They noticed a strong chemical smell in the home, which came from several substances that were mixed together. The officers experienced dizziness and irritated eyes. They were all treated at a hospital. 
and released an investigation showed that all the chemicals in the home were legal. In our weather forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures near 60 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with highs in the low 80s, showers on Friday, temperatures only in the 70s. It's 71 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington, where tomorrow, former President Trump will be arraigned in his third criminal indictment since March. The first was the case out of New York involving alleged hush money payments. In June, it was a federal indictment over the handling of classified documents. And last night came more federal charges accusing Trump of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. And another election interference case could bring even more charges after that out of Georgia. We're going to sort through the legal and political stakes of it all. And to do that, I want to bring in now former federal prosecutor and Georgetown University law professor Paul Butler and NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Hi to both of you. Hey, Elsa. Great to be here. Hi, Elsa. Hi. Okay, so, Paul, I want to start with you. I want to talk about the legal strategy. I know that you used to work in the same section of the Justice Department as special counsel Jack Smith, who will now have to prove that former President Trump truly knew and believed that there was no election fraud happening in 2020, but still tried to overturn the results of the election. Now, based on what you have seen so far, how challenging do you think it will be for Smith's team to make that case? So I was struck by the simplicity of the moral of the January 6th indictment. Like Mar-a-Lago, it's a speaking indictment where the prosecution tells a story but where Mar-a-Lago is quite dramatic, the January 6th indictment is literally as simple as can be for the kind of felonies that it charges. So think about the 40 charges in the Mar-a-Lago prosecution mm-hmm. in the Manhattan hush money case. Yeah. DA Bragg charged 34 felonies. But in the federal January 6th case, They're arguably four. the most <laughs> serious public corruption mm-hmm. case in U.S. history, just four felony counts. So also, I imagine Jack Smith's strategy is to try to keep the straight case straightforward so that it's easy and quick to try. But but on that specific point of proving out the state of mind that President Trump truly knew and believed there was no election fraud happening, but still proceeded the way he did after the election, do you think that that will be hard to prove? So there's evidence that Trump told Pence that he was too honest. That's corroborative, the prosecution will say, of Trump's criminal intent that he knew the election wasn't actually rigged or stolen, but he didn't care. He was determined to remain in office by any means necessary. There's evidence that Trump will say, well, some lawyers told me that the election was stolen, but the indictment anticipates that defense and notes that Trump was told that the election was fair (laughs) and square by the existing attorney general, the deputy attorney general, the White House counsel, and even Trump's own campaign manager. Okay, and Deirdre, former President Trump continues to be the front runner in the Republican field for 2024. Will this latest indictment change that in any way, you think? 
It's still really early, but probably not. I mean, based on what we've seen so far, we saw the former president's political stock among the Republican base actually go up after their criminal charges in the New York case and in the documents case. If you look at polling before and after those two indictments, Trump's numbers went up both times. In the most recent NPR Maris NewsHour poll, which came out last week before this latest indictment, but after Trump signaled he expected it to happen, Trump still has a lot of support. A solid 58% of Republicans and GOP-leaning independents still want Trump to be the Republican nominee. There has been some slight softening among some independents and some GOP-leaning independents. That could have an impact in the general election. Mm-hmm. But right now in the Republican primary, Trump is easily ahead. Okay, let's talk logistics given the campaign and these upcoming trials. Paul, this is the former president's third indictment in recent months. The trial date in the classified documents case is already set for May. What's your sense of how the other trial dates will be prioritized or scheduled in this latest election interference indictment? So the state cases should not be an issue. D.A. Bragg has already said he'll allow... This is the New York case? Yeah. And he said that he'll allow the federal prosecutions to take precedence. And if, as expected, the Fulton County D.A. brings racketeering charges, that's a long, complicated prosecution that will probably go last. I suspect D.A. Willis wouldn't mind seeing what happens in Trump's federal January 6th trial because her prosecution is likely to rely on some of the same evidence. So of the two federal cases, mm-hmm. Mar-a-Lago is more complicated because there are more defendants, three, and the evidence includes sensitive material related to national security. All of the defense attorneys have to get security clearance clearances. Right. That takes a month. And, yeah. and one of the defendants doesn't even have local counsel yet. There's nothing to stop the two federal judges in both those cases from getting on the phone with each other and the lawyers and working out an order which would likely lead to the January 6th prosecution going first. Getting priority. Okay. And Deirdre, going to use to stick with the 2024 campaign, how is the rest of the GOP field reacting to this latest indictment? Give us just a sense. Most are really not taking on Trump directly. Instead, they're echoing the former president's criticism of the Justice Department. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was on Fox News earlier today, and he essentially ignored the substance of these January 6th criminal charges. And instead, he said he would defang federal agencies if he's elected president. Well, one of the reasons I'm wanting for President Harris is to uh, reconstitutionalize the federal government and these agencies that have become weaponized, the FBI, the DOJ, uh, against political opponents. Former Vice President Mike Pence was at the Indiana okay. State Fair today, and he did criticize Trump, and he said he's getting bad legal advice. That was NPR's Deirdre Walsh and Georgetown Law Professor Paul Butler. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Elsa. Always a pleasure. The rapper Juvenile asked this question. WTF is a tiny desk. He's behind hits like Back That Thing Up and Slow Motion. And on Twitter, a fan had been begging him to appear on the NPR music video performance series, which apparently he had not heard about. That was in mid-April. By late June. You know what it is to make nothing out of something. You handle your kids and don't be crying in the summer. He'd played some of his greatest hits in a stripped-down performance here at NPR headquarters. And I got to tell you, from my spot in the crowd, it was incredible. 
For the 50th anniversary of hip-hop this month, NPR Music is pulling together all of its hip-hop Tiny Desk concerts. And NPR Music's Bobby Carter is the senior producer behind a lot of them. Hey, Bobby. What up, Wana? Okay, so I realize that I am asking you a question that's sort of like asking you to pick your favorite child, but I'm going to do it anyway. Give us a few of your favorite hip-hop Tiny Desks. <laughs> it is like picking a child. But um, I always like to split them into two. So some of my favorites, obviously, are the ones that are the undeniables, right? Like Meg the Stallion. Don't ask questions if we just sexing. I got situations, no confirmations. Everybody wanna know who making dates and that depends on whatever the date is. And Mac Miller, Tyler the Creator. I said, okay, 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 my infatuation and translating to another form of what you call it. But then there are those, you know, some of my favorites that aren't mentioned as often, like Freddie Gibbs. Freddie Gibbs, Tiny Desk, Freddie Gibbs with Mad Lib. That's my favorite Tiny Desk in terms of hip hop, like of all time. It, it gets no better than that to me. What made it so special? The way the band took these, these samples that Mad Lib chopped and brought out all of the special little intricacies and just made them completely new records. Like you heard these songs that Freddie Gibbs spit on in a completely new way. It's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Uh, it's when this music started moving, man. Uh. But I still receive the mood of things. Uh. I mean, I know for me, one of my favorite days of working here is anytime there is a tiny desk performance in the house and these things break the internet, but I'm curious, are there any sleeper shows that come to mind when you think about the hip-hop catalog, ones that maybe got a little less love? Yeah, to me, those those are the shows that really sort of validate us as an authentic source for hip-hop. Like, we've had Rakim at the Tiny Desk, right? We've had Rhapsody. It's when you step out on faith, choose to do it feel right, let everyone else trace. What we chase ain't the same. I'm still that rapper that your favorite rapper scared to rap after. Sometimes it's hard to chill. I choose to kill, 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 kill. Big Crit, Common, Wu-Tang, Saba is one of my favorite Tiny Desks. And, you know, people love them, but we have some that are so huge that at times we forget about the ones that are, that are just as great. Um, and th those are the ones I love the most. No, I can't feel your pain. But I can see the stars. No, I ain't even vain. But I know we be God. There's heaven all around me. There's heaven all around me. So the Tiny Desk is this really intimate venue, if we can even call it a venue. But Bobby, what does it bring out in hip hop artists? What do these performances show us that people might not pick up by seeing these artists at a big concert or even watching a music video? Yeah, I think hip-hop at the Tiny Desk proves that um, hip-hop can be as musically sophisticated as any other genre out there. You know, when you go back and you watch Anderson Pack behind the drum kit rapping. Let me get down. Do you see what's happening? You might never, never come down. And that's such a unique experience, and it brings out the musicality of all of these records, right? It's sophisticated. You know, the opulence of these of these live versions at the desk are completely different from what you hear on record. And I think another thing that's, that's important is that, you know, when you have MCs and, and, and rappers coming to NPR, it's important to let them know that they're able and they're free to be their authentic selves uh, behind the desk. Because, you know, there's a level of respect that people have for NPR and, you know, nobody's cussing on NPR, but I let them know, <laughs> look, you can be yourself. Once you're behind the desk, you are not censored. You can present your art exactly the way you want it to present it.
Okay, so I mentioned that you were pulling together all of these incredible hip-hop tiny desks in one place. So where can we find them? You can go to npr.org slash tinydesk, and there you will find our beautiful array of hip-hop shows uh, from the years. So scroll through and have some fun. Oh, trust me, I will. (laughs) That is Bobby Carter, one of the producers of NPR Music's Tiny Desk Concerts. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Juan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is WBUR. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a group of independent investigators spent eight years looking into what happened to 43 college students who went missing in Mexico. The last of those international investigators have now left Mexico. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower today. The Dow was down about 348 points, and NASDAQ was down to 13,973. In local business news, the average price of gas in Massachusetts keeps going up. AAA Northeast says the current state average is $3.71 a gallon. That's up 10 cents in the past week. It's 19 minutes past five. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by View Boston, now open, a new experience atop the Prue with three stories of 360-degree panoramic views featuring food and drinks and opportunities to discover hidden gems of Boston and snap a selfie on the outdoor roof deck. Tickets at viewboston.com. Forecast says comfortable tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees under clear skies. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with highs in the low 80s. Showers on Friday, though. Heavy thunderstorms possible and temperatures in the 70s. It is 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. A federal jury in Pittsburgh recommended the death penalty today for the man convicted of killing 11 Jewish worshipers in 2018. That was considered the worst anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. In addition to those 11 deaths, six other people were injured. Oliver Morrison from member station WESA was in court to hear the jury's decision. Hi, Oliver. Hi. Was the death penalty recommendation a surprise? For most people, I don't think so. Um, He was already convicted on 63 different counts, and the jury decided he was guilty of 200 aggravating factors that showed that his crime was just worse than normal. Um, During the last phase of the trial, the jury deliberated for less than two hours. During this phase, it did deliberate for almost a day and a half, which made it seem like it was taking it more seriously. But the defense lawyers had a hard time because... Bauer showed no remorse. Um, What he told psychiatrists was that he wished he had actually killed more people. What defense was offered by his lawyers? So they gave a few different defenses. One was that he suffered a tragic childhood, and that was um, seemed to be true. That he, his mom suffered from mental illness. His father committed suicide when he was at a young age. Excuse me, he killed himself. And then um, 
he himself was hospitalized in the psychiatric hospital multiple times. Um, the second part was that he had schizophrenia, that he had a hard time telling right from wrong. He had these delusions. And part of their evidence was that he only became anti-Semitic and developed these beliefs less than a year before the attack. So they thought that this was evidence it was a delusion. And then finally, they just tried some general sympathy. They brought his aunt uh, to the stand. But um, tellingly, his, his mom never did take the stand to testify on his behalf. The fact that there was a death penalty recommendation certainly suggests that the jury did not find that defense persuasive. But do we know anything about how the jury responded to the arguments by defense and prosecutors? Yeah, we do. Um, the jury said that they agreed with every single one of the prosecution's arguments, um, including that he showed no remorse, um, that the victims are especially vulnerable. Um, they said they believed with part of the defense's arguments, the parts that showed that he had a tragic childhood. Nearly all the jury members like um, agreed with many of the defense statements about his childhood, but they didn't agree with the diagnosis that he had schizophrenia. Experts disagreed in court on that, and the jury didn't come to that conclusion. Um, the jury's job is to then sort of weigh those two factors since they believe part of both sides um, and see what is more serious. And for the jury, it was just a lot more serious. It, there was more moral weight to what he did than to the things that he suffered. And Oliver, I understand the Jewish community there was divided over whether he should be put to death. Do you have a sense of how people are feeling today? Well, a, a bunch of the survivors and family members gathered at the Jewish Community Center this afternoon after the verdict, and that's a critical space because this is the same room that they all came to on the night of the shooting to find out whether their loved ones survived or not. It's also the Jewish Community Center is the, the place they learned later during the trial was a second place that Bowers was planning to attack that he called off at the last minute. And um, they began with a prayer from the Tree of Life Rabbi Jeffrey Myers. Baruch atah Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, shehechiyanu vikiyamanu vihigiyanu lazman hazeh. What we've just said is praised are you, O God, sovereign of the universe, who's kept us alive, sustained us, and enabled us to reach this day. And I understand tomorrow... They had a lot of different feelings... Uh, about uh, what happened, and a relief was one of them. But tomorrow they said they'll get another chance in court to speak hearing. during the sentencing hearing, that, and they're hoping that people will be able to hear them then. Thank you for that. That's Oliver Morrison, member station WESA. Communities nationwide are trying to protect themselves from the effects of climate change. They're shoring up coastlines, they're making roads higher, and all of that is expensive. Now, two new laws aim to help with tens of billions of federal dollars. But as WABE's Emily Jones reports, that money can be very hard to get. Tybee Island sits off Georgia's coast near Savannah. It's home to about 3,000 people and popular as a beach destination. And it has a problem every time it rains. So all the storm water drains into here. I'll show you this. Tybee resident Alan Robertson points to the pipe where the island's stormwater is supposed to drain out when it rains. It's buried by sand. The pipe's under there. <laughs> you can't see it, but there. So what happens is when it gets covered with sand and the tide rises, there's nowhere for the stormwater to go. The water backs up in the system and ends up flooding the roads. So the city has to clear this every day. Climate change is making the problem worse. Between rising sea levels and worsening rainfall, the island's entire stormwater system will need to be re-engineered. Tybee's not alone. Communities across the country have problems like this. Flooding, wildfires, heat waves, and droughts are getting more intense as fossil fuel emissions warm the planet. People need to be protected. 
Infrastructure like roads and stormwater systems need to be fortified. Doing all of that takes a lot of money. The good news? The federal government is making a ton of money available thanks to a pair of landmark new climate and infrastructure laws. The bad news? That money can be really hard to get. There are so many new opportunities coming down the line that it's hard to keep track. Michael Dexter is with the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network. His whole job is helping cities with federal grants. And yet... It's still hard to look across multiple federal agencies, dozens if not hundreds of different grant programs. And figure out which one works for your city. Last year's Inflation Reduction Act and the 2021 Infrastructure Law together contain more than $50 billion over the next decade to address climate impacts. But to get the money, communities have to apply. You need data and plans. Sometimes cash-strapped cities need to come up with some funding on their own. Last fall, at a meeting of government staff in coastal Georgia, participants listed the hurdles they have to clear to apply for funding. Knowledge of the available grant opportunities. Uh, Of course, staff time. Legal review. Getting all the pieces together and, and from the different stakeholders. Approval to submit the grant. And then the last thing, what happens if we actually get the grant? Oh my God, we have to, <laughs> we have to do it. It's all a lot to handle for understaffed local governments. That means accessing money can be hardest for the places that need it most. Nathaniel Smith of the nonprofit Partnership for Southern Equity says the whole process disadvantages many of the places most at risk from climate change, often poor communities and communities of color. All of these things have helped to facilitate a competitive advantage of, in particular, white communities and and well-resourced communities. Lots of organizations are trying to help navigate the funding maze. And the federal government says it's learned from the past and is designing these programs with vulnerable places in mind. Daniel Blackman was, until recently, the Environmental Protection Agency's regional administrator for the Southeast. All these great numbers and these great programs means absolutely nothing if communities that need it most can't have access to it. So federal agencies like the EPA and Department of Transportation are offering help with the application process. And some of the new funding is specifically earmarked for disadvantaged communities. Michael Dexter of the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network says no one knows yet if those efforts will be enough. I was going to say that that's the $100 million question. No, that's the $1 trillion, multiple trillion dollar question. And the answer is essential because these landmark climate and infrastructure laws can only protect people from climate impacts if the money actually unclogs storm drains like Tybee Islands and keeps floodwater off the streets. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll talk with Oklahoma native Justin Salas. He took up rock climbing after he lost his vision, and he's now a renowned rock climber. That's in about 20 minutes here on WBUR. Keep listening. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers. In our forecast, clear skies tonight, temperatures around 60 degrees, sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s, showers Friday, maybe thunderstorms, temperatures in the 70s.
Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The gunman who stormed a synagogue in the heart of Pittsburgh's Jewish community, killing 11 worshipers five years ago, likely will be sentenced to death. Jurors deliberated over two days before handing down their sentencing recommendation for the deadliest anti-Semitic attack ever in the U.S. Prosecutors say Robert Bowers spewed hatred of Jews online and methodically planned the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Here's FBI Special Agent Christopher Giordano. Today's verdict will never bring back the 11 members of the synagogue who were killed. But to those families who lost loved ones, I hope today allows you to close this terrible chapter and continue moving forward and continue healing. The 50-year-old truck driver will be officially sentenced tomorrow and could face the death penalty. California's largest wildfire of the year has ballooned to more than 82,000 acres today. That's about the size of Las Vegas. Among the victims are the iconic Joshua trees in the Mojave National Preserve. From member station KCRW, Kaylee Wells has more. California's Joshua trees are already threatened by solar and real estate development and by the West's mega drought made worse by climate change. They're also really flammable. A 2020 fire here killed 1.3 million Joshua trees, and it was half the size of this one. Cody Hanford with the Mojave Desert Land Trust says the nonprofit will do what it can to help the plants recover, but he expects a tough road ahead. It is challenging to think about putting one foot in front of the other and doing this again tomorrow, but we have no other choice. We have to do that. This comes after Joshua trees were denied federal endangered species protections in March because they are too resilient and abundant to qualify. For NPR News, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA and its largest workers' union have reached a new collective bargaining agreement. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. It took months of negotiations for the T and the Boston Carmen's Union Local 589 to reach the deal. At a press conference today, Governor Maura Healy said the contract will increase wages by 18 percent over four years. This is the largest pay increase for tea workers since the 1990s. Union President Jim Evers said the deal is meant to appeal to new hires and help retain current workers by addressing some longstanding employee issues. Improving employee restroom access, expanding bereavement leave to include domestic partners, and clarifying language pertaining to assaults on our drivers. The MBTA Board of Directors will meet tomorrow to ratify the agreement. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Electricity from the Vineyard Wind One project is expected to start flowing by mid-October. That announcement came from project developers during a boat tour of the site today. The offshore wind farm, located about 15 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, will start operating at about 10 percent of capacity. Vineyard Wind One expects to be fully operational by this time next year, providing enough power for 400,000 homes and businesses. 
Roxbury's Nubian Square has a new monument to honor black veterans. It's located in the Edward O. Gordine and African American Veterans Memorial Park. Gordine was a general in one of the Army's last racially segregated battalions during World War II. He was also the first black person appointed as a superior court judge in New England. A Cambridge and Somerville-based food organization is bringing farm fresh food to homeless shelters. Food for Free has partnered with Waltham Fields Community Farms to pick up produce every week and bring it to agencies that feed unhoused individuals. The group's operations manager, Mary Reed, says they picked up almost 600 pounds of food from Waltham this morning. Including zucchini, radish, squash, lettuce, among other things. And they went to different organizations to pick up more food or to give uh, other recipients food. And then they ended up at the Pine Street Inn. Also, a program at the Pine Street Inn trains people to enter the restaurant industry. The time is 5.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture. Family-owned and committed to sustainability, community, and quality. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Red Sox are playing the Mariners in Seattle this afternoon. The score right now, 3 nothing Sox in the fifth inning. In our forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees. Should be nice tonight. Sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the low 80s. And for Friday, showers likely. We could see heavy thunderstorms. Temperatures in the 70s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations, including foundations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. For generations, the U.S. government has been seen as a very trustworthy borrower. But that reputation got a black eye this week. The Fitch Bond Rating Agency stripped the government of its AAA credit rating. And that caused minor tremors in the stock market today, although officials say the overall fallout should be limited. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to talk through the implications. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sasha. At a minimum, this is a symbolic blow for the government's finances. Explain to us why Fitch took this action now. Yeah, Fitch was motivated by a combination of big government deficits and political gridlock. Uh, The rating agency notes that the government's now carrying about $32 trillion in debt relative to the size of the U.S. economy. That's almost three times what the average AAA-rated country owes. What's more, there's not much sign of any improvement on the horizon. Richard Francis, who helped conduct this analysis for Fitch, points to the recent deal the Biden administration struck with House Republicans to temporarily raise the debt ceiling. Uh, That deal did impose some modest limits on spending, but it didn't really address the country's big, longer-term fiscal challenges. To really tackle the issues, you're going to have to look at some of the other big elephants in the room, whether it's raising taxes or somehow reforming entitlement programs. There's a number of ways you can do it. It's just I I don't get a sense that there's willingness on either side of the table to make those painful choices. 
Francis points to what he calls a steady deterioration in governance over the last couple of decades. Not only the two political parties increasingly polarized on fiscal issues, but you also had the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And now we have a former president who's been indicted on charges he tried to block the peaceful transfer of power. Not really what you'd expect from a triple-A rated government. How much damage could this downgrade do? Well, the practical fallout may be limited. Uh, even with this downgrade, the nation still has the nation's uh, still has the second highest credit rating, AA plus. So it's not as though institutional investors are going to be forced to sell off their government bonds. Uh, there was, as you mentioned, a little gyration in the stock market today. The Dow dropped almost 350 points. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen does not think Fitch's move is going to scare investors away from buying government bonds. At the end of the day, Fitch's decision does not change. What all of us already know, the Treasury securities remain the world's preeminent safe and liquid asset, and that the American economy is fundamentally strong. Yellen called the downgrade puzzling, given the country's very low unemployment rate, falling inflation, and solid GDP growth. One thing to note, this downgrade was not based on some new piece of information or some financial secret that Fitch just uncovered. The political dysfunction the rating agency describes is something we've all been witness to in recent years. So Fitch's move may not change a lot of opinions. And Scott, what would it take to restore the top bond rating, which until yesterday our government had? Some uh, effort to address those long-term finances, reduce the deficit, uh, address the challenges of funding Medicare and Social Security for an aging population. Uh, Fitch's Richard Francis says there are ways the government could improve its credit rating, but given the way the two parties are dug in, he's not holding his breath. If we did actually think that there was some meaningful chance that the government could come together and tackle these issues, then we might say uh, we can wait. But I, I just don't see that in the current political environment. Francis said it would also help if the government overhauled that debt ceiling so we don't have to face another round of brinkmanship in just a couple of years. NPR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Angus Cloud was an overnight celebrity. Spotted by a casting scout on a street in New York, Cloud became a breakout star in HBO's Euphoria. He played Fezco, the drug dealer with a heart of gold. Listen, Rue, you a drug addict. I don't take nothing a drug addict says personally. Because I don't believe nothing a drug addict said. I love you. I hate you. You the best. Go f- yourself. It's all the same. F- you know what I'm saying? Y'all just looking for an angle in. I know, but as your friend, I need you to know that I'm sorry. And I love you. Love you too, kid. Cloud was an audience favorite. And the show launched him not only into a new career, but into a new life. But that life was tragically cut short this week. Cloud died on Monday at the age of 25. To help us remember him, we're joined now by Variety reporter Salome Hailu. Welcome. Hi. Hi. So let's just start with how Cloud first joined the show, Euphoria. It's that kind of origin story that people dream about, I guess. You know, like some regular person gets plucked out of nowhere and becomes super famous seemingly overnight. Can you just Tell us briefly what Cloud's story was, how he ended up on the show. So Cloud is from Oakland. He grew up doing a bit of art stuff here and there, but wasn't really pursuing any of that professionally. He was just kind of worried about getting by. 
At some point, he found himself living in Brooklyn. He was working at a chicken and waffles restaurant. <laughs> and as it was told to me by Jennifer Venditti, the casting director on Euphoria, she had a casting scout who was going to different acting classes all over the city, kind of looking for somebody to fill these roles. And then on her walk home, her phone was dead. She's in the dark in the middle of Brooklyn and she happens upon these two guys. It's Angus Cloud and a friend of his and just likes something about the way that they look. Hmm. So she tries to convince them that she's legit. One of the friends was like, I don't really believe you. The other sure. one, Angus, took her number down and thought about it. The next day he called them up and seems like they. it was pretty much a hit from there. Dang. Well, how did Cloud handle his sudden fame? Do you know? Or, or how did he see himself as an actor? Cloud didn't really see himself as a celebrity and didn't change his lifestyle much um, besides what he had to do to go to work. So when I interviewed him for a profile that I wrote last summer, we talked a bit about that. He got recognized while we were together and it kind of confused him when people would come up to him and say, are you from Euphoria? And he would always, his, it was a famous answer where he would say, no, I'm from Oakland, but I'm on the show, yeah. Um, and kept saying, like, this is what I'm doing right now, but it's not necessarily forever. It's, yeah. It wasn't my dream, and it's just what happened for me. Well, Angus Cloud had such a short acting career, such a short life, but do you think he is someone who has left a legacy? How do you think he'll be remembered by fans? I really hope that Angus and his story, both in life and in death, can help people understand how to be more gentle to people in the public eye, especially folks like him who never planned to be in the public eye. I think that him being on a show like Euphoria that deals so heavily and explicitly with things like drug abuse, coming from a creator like Sam Levinson, who has always been very open in discussing things like that, it was clearly a very heavy environment, and we had the tools to know and see that he wasn't used to being viewed the way that he was. And so I hope that people can see him as a success story and that there, there's so much talent and heart that we're never going to have access to if we're not lucky enough to get spotted on the street by <laughs> a talent scout on her way home with her phone dead. And also that somebody like him, a young actor, is just a person. That is Salome Hailu, a reporter at Variety, remembering actor Connor Angus Cloud Hickey. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Joe and Jill Biden are trading 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue for their vacation home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware this week. They're doing what many families do on vacation, see a movie, take walks on the beach. But trying to blend in as president is tough. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more. Mr. President! When you're the president, even a simple bike ride is a production. You're trailed by Secret Service, passerbys gather to cheer you on, and the press pool that follows you in D.C. is still close by. A vacation for a president is not really a vacation. You're not 
ever fully off. That's Tevi Troy, a former White House aide and a presidential historian. You have to bring national security aides, you have to bring a communications apparatus, you obviously have to bring the football, which is the nuclear codes. So a presidential vacation is much more complicated than just loading up the minivan with peanut butter sandwiches and some suitcases. Presidential vacations can be interrupted by breaking news or legislation that needs to be signed. And even if the responsibilities don't end, presidents get criticized for the appearance of taking a break. That's true for Biden, too, who has traveled to his homes in Delaware numerous times throughout his presidency. Biden has long been a regular at Rehoboth, and beachgoers don't seem that starstruck. He's a regular human, just like you and I, so I don't feel any type of way. <laughs> if we saw him, we'd be like, oh, okay, you know, there he is. Fine. I wouldn't even go near him. I'm indifferent to it. So, like, the first time, it's like, oh, okay, you know, hey, that's cool, you know, it's the motorcade, and then now it's kind of like, we're over it. For some locals, like Bridget Mullins, the novelty of the president coming to town, along with his motorcade and tendency to back up traffic, has worn off. And he went to the main church here, and that was exciting the first time. Yeah, but after that, it's a hassle. But kids, kids are a different story. I love the fact that, you know, we're in the same town. That's 11-year-old Araya, who has a big smile with remnants of an ice cream cone quickly melting on this hot day. I want to go live with him. He's rich, and he could buy me an iPad. He can make sure I got the best birthdays, the best Christmases. Further down the beach are high schoolers Gabriella Hildreth and Ariana Stanton, who are surprised to hear the news. Is he here? I literally told her earlier, I was like, Biden comes here all the time. They quickly launch into a debate about what to do if they saw the president. Can I have a picture? I don't know. Shake his hand, I don't know. Yes, I would. I would want to. Then he could be like, I shook President Biden's hand. I wouldn't say anything. I would leave him alone. I I feel like he gets all the time, though, so I would just feel like you're overstepping your boundary, maybe. Like, just let him be. 19-year-old Lily Saccolario is also thinking about a potential interaction with Biden. She's working this summer at the ice cream store, a popular spot that has a picture of Biden on display behind the waffle cone maker from when he visited years ago. He has Almond Joy as a flavor, and we just put that online this morning. She wonders, will the Almond Joy bat signal work? Well, I'm sure he would be super nice. Appreciate it, kid. Oh. You'd be nervous. Yeah, but I, I, I'm up for it. I would want him to, I don't know, say it's the best ice cream cone he's ever had. Compliment my scooping, maybe. Daniel Fry, who's visiting Rehoboth for a family reunion, says he'd also be excited to see Biden, regardless of politics. I am probably as pro-Republican and pro-Trump as can be. I am not a fan of Joe Biden, but he's still our American president. And, you know... It's always been an honor and privilege to be in the presence of the president. So I think it's kind of a cool thing. Fry just missed seeing Biden in the park, but he plans to come back tomorrow in the hopes of catching a glimpse. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Rehoboth Beach. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to WBUR this afternoon. Coming up on All Things Considered, how some congregations in Sacramento, California, gathered together to help migrants who were shipped there from Texas. 
In our forecast, clear skies tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees. It'll be comfortable. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with highs in the 80s. On Friday, showers, heavy thunderstorms possible as well. Temperatures in the 70s on Friday. And for the weekend, looks like the rain will clear up Saturday morning, giving way to mostly sunny skies. Highs near 80 degrees on Saturday. Sunshine on Sunday with temperatures in the 80s. It is 70 degrees right now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wilbur with comedian Mike Birbiglia this holiday season on his Christmas Parmesan tour. New shows added December 9th to 23rd. Info at thewilbur.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. astreetframes.com. In the last year, musician Post Malone's life went from rock star to girl dad. Going on tour is really hard because she did 10 steps the other day and her mom sent me a video and I was like, oh, I really, really, really wish that I could have seen that. The hit singer on Fatherhood and his intensely personal new album. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. For about eight years now, a group of independent investigators has tried to find out what happened to 43 college students who went missing in Mexico. This week, the last two international investigators who had stuck with the case left the country, saying that their investigation had hit a dead end. NPR's Ada Peralta spoke to one of them just before he left the country. Carlos Martín Beristán remembers what the parents of the missing college students told him nearly eight years ago. Always tell us the truth. They also told us, please don't sell out. Beristán, a psychologist, has spent his life working with victims of human rights abuses. He's been on truth commissions across Latin America, and no one had ever asked him not to sell out. That points to a lived experience in Mexico. That is, what's happened to people who have been caught in a strategy of deception. Indeed, the case of the 43 students who went missing from a teacher's college in Ayotzinapa in 2014 has become symbolic of an epidemic in Mexico. The government has lied over and over about what happened to the students. And like the more than 100,000 people reported missing in the country, they have been left in a purgatory neither dead nor alive. The impunity of this country ends up having a huge psychological toll that we psychologists call learned helplessness. In the end, you learn that you can't change everything, that everything ends up the same. The group of international investigators did make a difference, though. When they came in, the government was saying that one of the drug cartels killed the students, incinerated their bodies, and threw their remains in a dump. The investigators quickly found the government planted evidence that they tortured witnesses to put out a convenient story. He says when they met with the families, they thanked investigators. They still didn't know where their children were. 
But they said, we're happy because a weight has been lifted. El peso de la mentira. The weight of the lie. The group of experts put out their final report last week. They found the military was present at the site of the kidnappings. They found that Mexican security forces had real-time knowledge. They had GPS locations of the perpetrators. Investigators found snippets of transcriptions of their conversations. They found references to full transcripts to more documents that the military refused to turn over. But this is as far as we can go. Our last report puts all the cards on the table. The last report makes it clear that the government was responsible for this crime, that the government worked hand-in-hand hand with the cartels to disappear the students, and that the government has in its hands the evidence it needs to tell the parents what happened to their children. In a lot of ways, it was a truth the families knew from the beginning. When they march every year in Mexico City, they leave graffiti on monuments, on pavements, on the walls of businesses. It reads, it was the state. Es una verdad que confirma el sufrimiento. It's a truth that validates their suffering. Y también a veces la impotencia, ¿no? But it also validates their helplessness. Everyone knows it was the state. Yet no one's been convicted and Mexicans keep disappearing. Nothing ever changes. And suddenly, he says, a truth that should liberate. Instead, paralyzes. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Rock climbing is riveting to watch. It's human versus gravity. Now imagine scaling a sheer cliff face without sight. Justin Salas does that. He's a six-time paraclimbing national champion and world champion. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman tells us how he learned the sport after he lost his vision. Wow. Justin Salas, who's 30 and lives in Salt Lake City, became legally blind about 16 years ago. He lost his sight to optic neuropathy, a degenerative condition caused by damage to the optic nerve. He now sees with what he refers to as donut vision. So I just have peripheral, um, no central. So I can get around and look like I'm not visually impaired, but if you could imagine when you try and look at something, it disappears. Salas took up rock climbing about eight years after he lost his sight. If you take two steps over on that same crack system yep. and then go off of your 11, match hands would be a pretty good move. That's Ty Vineyard, who's acting as Salas's collar on this climb up a vertical wall of gray-brown textured limestone. Vineyard's job is to stay on the ground, describe the holds above Salas, and suggest his next move, and to catch him on the climbing rope if he falls. And then right by your right, your left shin, excuse me, uh, that kind of that crimp you were standing on earlier. The two are demonstrating how visually impaired climbers work with a partner in a clinic at the 30th Annual International Climbers Festival in Lander, Wyoming. Salas moves up the vertical cliff with grace, pulling on grooved pockets in the rock and delicately balancing on small edges. He's teaching a workshop called Fundamentals of Visualization to a mix of people with and without visual impairments. I'm sure it's helpful to be able to see the wall and see where the holds are, but you learn it in like a more intimate way. When he's climbing, Salas visualizes a black 3D space in his mind. Then he places a map made of neon squares onto the space based on the information he receives from his collar. So I imagine like building this like neon root mental map in my mind of the root. Yeah, grids basically, exactly. And then I try and retain that. So by the time I'm going to get on the wall, I have a pretty good understanding of what I'm going to be doing. 
After climbing for only three years, Salas became the first adaptive climber to achieve the grade of V11, which, to translate, is very, very hard. He's climbed and competed all over the world and says his connection with his competition collar has been fine-tuned over years of getting to know each other. Still, Salas says it's all a balancing act. If someone's relaying information to you, it's all great, but you also have to like split your mind and like flow in climbing, but also process the information they're giving you. Salas says living with vision loss has been a continual learning process. He says the climbing community has been a huge support and that the sport has taught him a lot. When you're dealing with a visual impairment, just like living life and being brave is the most important way to go about it. And then you just like compensate as you learn. Salas's upcoming goals include trying what's known informally as the Grand Teton Triathlon, a combination of road biking, open water swimming, and then a 16-mile hike and climb up the Grand Teton. For NPR News, I'm Hannah Haberman. And be sure to listen to Morning Edition tomorrow. We head to Japan to explore why their obesity rate is so much lower compared to the U.S. From public transportation to lunches in schools, they're doing things just a little bit differently over there. To find out more, be sure to turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play your local station by name. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is NPR. Thanks for being with WBUR this afternoon. It's 70 degrees in Boston right now at about a minute before 6 o'clock. Just ahead on the show, a story about how brief interactions with dogs might be good for your health. Take WBUR along with you wherever you're headed this summer. Just tap to listen live and to catch up on what's happening. Download or update the WBUR app now. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Trump prepares to appear in court tomorrow to face new charges that he conspired to change the 2020 presidential election. It's Wednesday, August 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. 
Good afternoon. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, we talk with Trump attorney John Lauro about the latest indictment against the former president and a potential legal strategy. Also, how a group of different congregations in Sacramento worked together when migrants were flown from Texas to California. On Wall Street, stocks took a dive today at 6.30. Marketplace will have all the day's numbers and a story about a new instant payment app from the Fed. It's one minute past six. First, a look at this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former Vice President Mike Pence is once again defending his actions on the day of the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol building. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports Pence's remarks come a day after a grand jury investigating the January 6th insurrection indicted former President Donald Trump for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Speaking to reporters in Indianapolis, Pence said he repeatedly resisted pressure from those seeking to stop him from certifying the results of the presidential election. Sadly, the president was surrounded by a group of crackpot lawyers that kept telling him what his itching ears wanted to hear. And while I made my case to him of what I understood my oath of the Constitution to require uh, the president ultimately, you know, continued to demand uh, that I choose him over the Constitution. The former vice president added that anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president. Pence is considered a key witness in the case brought by special counsel Jack Smith due to his knowledge of events leading up to the insurrection. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Pittsburgh jury has decided Robert Bowers will be sentenced to death for killing 11 worshipers at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018. Remember station WESA, Julia Zenkovich has more. Jurors deliberated for just under 10 hours over two days and sentenced Bowers for each of the 22 counts that carried the possibility of the death penalty. Earlier this summer, that same jury had found Bowers guilty on 63 federal charges, including 11 counts of obstruction of free exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death for what is the deadliest anti-Semitic assault in U.S. history. During the trial's penalty phase, defense lawyers said Bowers had a history of mental health issues. Bowers still faces sentencing on the 41 charges that don't carry the death penalty, which will be up for the judge to decide. For NPR News, I'm Julia Zankovich in Pittsburgh. The FBI is asking for the public's help in identifying additional victims of a man accused of kidnapping and sexual assault. Jefferson Public Radio's Jane Vaughn reports. Nagasi Zuberi is accused of kidnapping a woman in Washington, sexually assaulting her, and driving her to his home in southern Oregon, where authorities say he locked her in a makeshift cinder block cell. Zuberi is currently in federal custody. Here's Assistant Special Agent in Charge Stephanie Shark. The disturbing evidence uncovered to date points to an individual's ongoing and escalating pattern of violence targeting women in multiple states throughout the country. Police say Zuberi has already been linked to violent sexual assaults in at least four states, and they believe he has more victims. For NPR News, I'm Jane Vaughn in Ashland, Oregon. The Fitch credit rating downgrade of U.S. government debt sent stocks tumbling today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 348 points. The Nasdaq dropped 310 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Maura Healey says the indictment of former President Trump is not surprising. Trump faces federal criminal charges for his alleged role in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. On today's Radio Boston program, Healey encouraged Massachusetts residents to read the indictment for themselves. 
it's a really sad commentary uh, on Donald Trump and, and what has happened here. Um, the indictment is not surprising. It is, in my view, absolutely appropriate. Um, and you know, m- the Department of Justice will will do what it needs to do. Haley says the indictment should underscore the importance of registering and voting. A coalition working to formally define rideshare drivers as independent contractors is again filing a ballot question in Massachusetts to do that. The proposal would ensure that drivers for apps like Uber and Lyft do not become classified as employees. It would also give the drivers benefits such as paid sick time and a minimum wage of $18 an hour. The rideshare-funded coalition filed a similar ballot question last year. Labor groups are fighting the measure and want legislation to classify rideshare drivers as employees. Unionized nurses at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute Merrimack Valley approved a strike authorization vote today that allows their bargaining unit to call a one-day strike against the Methuen facility if contract talks don't produce an agreement. The nurses say their current pay and benefits scale is 45 percent lower than nurses at the hospital's Boston campus, and they say the hospital's latest offer only addresses that by half. Dana-Farber says it's put forth a generous package and remains committed to reaching a fair and equitable agreement. Massachusetts and four other New England states are asking the operator of the regional electric grid to focus more on environmental justice. The states want, the states want ISO New England to create an executive-level position to help make sure that the clean energy transition is equitable. WBUR's Miriam Wasser has more. Keeping the lights on and managing electricity markets have traditionally been ISO New England's main considerations. But state leaders say the public health and environmental impacts of electricity generation and distribution matter too. Mireille Bajani is with the grassroots campaign Fix the Grid. She says creating this new position at ISO New England is a good first step. We can't successfully overhaul our electric system for the future that we need without taking into account environmental justice without having that expertise in the room. ISO New England says it will work with the states on this issue. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is awarding $10 million in grants to local communities to help offset costs associated with casinos. Springfield received the largest grant, $1.5 million, for a parking infrastructure project near the MGM Springfield Casino. In sports, Red Sox playing the Mariners in Seattle this afternoon. Right now, the score is 3-2 to two Sox in the seventh inning. Our weather forecast, clear tonight, mild as well. It should be cool right around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the low 80s, but showers and thunderstorms Friday with highs in the 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. Former President Donald Trump is expected to be arraigned tomorrow on charges that he participated in a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election results. This is the third criminal indictment for Trump, but the first tied to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. One of Trump's defense attorneys in this case, John Loro, is with me now. John, thank you for making time. Nice to meet you by phone this afternoon. Good, thank you. So some nuts and bolts questions first. 
Will Trump appear at his arraignment in person tomorrow? Yes. The arraignment is under a summons, which is a voluntary way of um, requesting the presence of a party before the court, and obviously the president will comply. In previous interviews, you have said that you would like a trial moved out of Washington, D.C., which, as you've pointed out, voted heavily for Joe Biden, and perhaps moved to West Virginia. Why West Virginia in specific? Well, we're looking for a more diverse area that has a more balanced political jury pool. Um, You know, the country is very, very divided politically right now. This is a very divisive indictment. It goes to issues of free speech and political activity. So we're looking for a jury that will be more balanced. And West Virginia was a state that was more evenly divided. And we're, we're hoping for a jury that doesn't come with any implicit or explicit bias or prejudice. So it makes sense to go to a place like West Virginia. The special counsel, Jack Smith, has said this will be a speedy trial. Do you have any objection to try to bring this case to trial before the November 2024 election? Well, speedy trial rights belong to the defense, not the government. The government has an obligation to turn over a lot of material and a lot of information, which they've not done yet, but they will. Uh, You know, the special counsel has, or the Biden Justice Department has been investigating this case for three and a half years. And uh, it just seems to me, in fairness, that we should have enough time to study the documents, be able to um, interview witnesses and, and look at the evidence in its totality, address a lot of legal issues with the judge as well. So what we want is a just trial, uh, not simply a speedy trial. There's no need to railroad any defendant in the United States. And we're hoping the Justice Department will recognize that justice is more important than speed. Do you have any sense of whether you could be ready for a trial before the November 2024 election? Well, it depends on what information is provided. This indictment literally lists election issues in seven states. So we'll be litigating a a case of unprecedented magnitude. This is going to be one of the biggest cases uh, in the history of the United States. It, it could it, The trial could last six months or nine months or even a year. So to, to expect that counsel is going to get ready in 90 days for a case like this is um, quite absurd. And this is looking quite ahead. But if it does go to trial, do you anticipate that Trump would testify in the case that you would advise him to? Well, we have to see what the evidence is. But we're in an election cycle. The Biden administration decided to bring a, an indictment against a political opponent in the middle of a campaign. And uh, the thought of President Trump um, having to uh, spend his time at trial instead of um, actively debating and talking about the issues against his political opponent is something that I think the judge is going to consider. But, but more importantly, you know, we have, a, we have a challenge ahead to get ready, and there's a massive amount of information, and we're entitled to look at it. I want to talk a little about your legal strategy. Could you give us a summary of your legal defense to these criminal charges? Well, it's not, you know, it's not a big surprise when you look at this indictment. It doesn't really say much other than President Trump was exercising his right to talk about the issues and and advocate politically for um, his belief that the election was uh, was stolen and and was improperly run. Um, He got advice from counsel, very, very wise and learned counsel on a variety of constitutional and legal issues. So it's a very straightforward defense that he had every right 
to advocate for a position that, that he believed in and his supporters believed in. And this is the first time in the history of the United States where a, a sitting administration is criminalizing speech against a prior administration. It's really quite unprecedented. Um, and it really will politicize the criminal justice system, which is um, terrible to see. So prosecutors are saying that these are criminal acts, but you're making the argument that former President Trump was exercising his constitutionally protected right to free speech. Is that the case you plan to make? Exactly. And free speech encompasses political advocacy, which often involves acting on that free speech. So, for example, if I were to take a position that I believe um, or I don't believe that service that young men should register for, uh, you know, service. There's a Supreme Court case right on point that says I'm entitled to do that, even though I am advocating a certain action or inaction. It's still protected by by the First Amendment. So I know you have said that you believe Trump was genuinely concerned about the integrity of the election, and the prosecutors will presumably argue that Trump was lying when he said the election was stolen or may have been stolen. I heard a previous interview you did in which you said that prosecutors would have to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he had corrupt intent, which they will never do. Is that what you see as the government's legal burden, as proving that Trump didn't really believe the election was stolen? It's embedded in the statute that they have to prove corrupt intent under 18 U.S.C. 1512, which is the obstruction statute. And corrupt intent means that you um, don't believe uh, in, not only that you don't believe in the position that you're advancing, but you're doing it for a corrupt purpose. You're doing it to obstruct a government function rather than a truth-seeking function. And here, what we will argue to the jury, and we'll win, is that President Trump was arguing for the truth to come out in that election cycle, rather than the truth to be denied. Even at the end, when he asked Mike Pence to pause the voting, he asked that it be sent back to the states so that the states, in exercising their truth-seeking function, could either audit or recertify. Quick final question uh, before we lose you. If the government can prove that Trump lied or that he had corrupt intent, will you still argue that's free speech? Well, political speech covers even information that turns out not to be true. So it's all protected by free speech. But at at the bottom, the government will never be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, as I said, that President Trump did not believe in the righteousness of his cause. But if they can, will you say it was free speech? Well, the only way that they can even attempt to prove it is at the end of a trial. I'm going to be arguing that throughout the trial. That is John Luro. He's a lawyer for former President Donald Trump, representing him in the new criminal charges filed yesterday. Thank you again for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now a question. What is four-legged, furry, and often serves up a quick little mood boost? That's right, dogs, like my floofy little Mickey. Well, as part of our ongoing series, Weekly Dose of Wonder, NPR's Maria Godoy explains how even short, friendly interactions with dogs can be good for our health. I started pondering the power of dogs during one of my daily strolls around my neighborhood. Almost invariably, I'll run into at least one person walking their dog. Hi, how you doing? Can I have a lick? This dog, a tiny thing named Freddie D, is happy to comply with a sloppy kiss on my hand. Oh, look at that. For me, it's a silly moment of joy. (laughs) You are so cute. You are so cute. I always walk away from these canine exchanges feeling just a bit more relaxed and happy. And that got me wondering, could these short interactions petting other people's pooches actually be good for me. Absolutely. Animals are beneficial to our mental and physical health. That's Nancy G. She's a professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University. 
She says in recent years, research on the health benefits of dogs has exploded and the quality of the evidence has improved. She says there's growing evidence that levels of the stress hormone cortisol drop in people after just 5 to 20 minutes spent interacting with dogs, even if it's not their pet. We see increases in oxytocin, so that feel-good kind of bonding hormone also increases. And you know what I love about this research is that it's a two-way street. We see the same thing in the dogs. So the dog's oxytocin also increases when they interact with a human. Now, of course, not everyone's a dog person, and the therapy dogs used in research are screened for friendliness and good behavior. There's also evidence that brief bouts of puppy love may also help us think better. G collaborated on a study that found school-age kids who had regular, short exchanges with pups in the classroom had reduced stress and improvements in their ability to stay on task and block out distractions. And G says those benefits lingered. We actually saw that one month later, and there's some evidence that it may exist at six months later. So what is it about hanging out with dogs that helps us chill out and focus? Megan Mueller studies the psychology of human-animal relationships at Tufts University. She says dogs prompt us to experience the world more like they do. Animals, dogs in particular, live in the moment. They're experiencing their environment with wonder and awe all the time, and they're not bringing what happened to them earlier in the day or what they're thinking about in the future. They're there right now. Mueller says watching dogs sniff the grass or explore the world around them cues us to pay more attention, too. They sort of pull you out of your phone and into whatever environment that you're in. She says there's some evidence that the act of actually touching a dog might be an important part of their calming effect. One study done in Canada found that college students reported less stress and reduced feelings of homesickness after brief interactions with dogs. And that effect was much bigger in those who actually got to pet the animals. She's currently running a study that's finding similar results. Some of the initial research has shown that that physical touch might impact our nervous system in a way that's beneficial. But it's not just how we cue into dogs that makes the relationship special. Nancy G. of Virginia Commonwealth University says over thousands of years of domestication, dogs have developed a wondrous ability to read us. They really can connect with another human being. And they do it in a very unassuming way. And they do it without the ability to use words. As my dog-loving nine-year-old recently told me, dogs have a way of speaking to our hearts. Maria Godoy, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Marketplace will have all the business news of the day, including a story about a new instant payment app from the Fed. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down more than 340 points. In local business news, a San Diego-based life sciences developer has agreed to purchase the last undeveloped property in Fort Point Channel's Center project. That's a nine-story lab building in the Boston that the Boston Planning and Development Agency approved earlier this year. The Boston Business Journal reports the price tag was $23.5 million. The sale of the largest newspaper group in Maine has been finalized. The nonprofit group National Trust for Local News purchased the newspapers for an undisclosed price. It includes five dailies and 17 weekly publications. 
It's 20 minutes past 6. Funding for WBUR's Business Report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologics CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Clear, cool skies tonight. Temperatures around 60 degrees. Sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 80s. Thunderstorms on Friday with temperatures in the 70s. 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arkari Rugs and Carpeting. Sales tax-free event August 10th to 13th with new and antique hand-knotted rugs. Boston, Salem, and Framingham. LandryandArkari.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. 36 migrants from Latin America arrived in Sacramento, California in early June. It was not their chosen destination. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sent them on chartered planes from El Paso, Texas, to make a point about immigration policy. These sanctuary jurisdictions are part of the reason we have this problem, because they have endorsed and agitated for these types of open border policies. The migrants all claimed to have political asylum, and they arrived in California confused and with nowhere to go. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports on the people who welcomed these strangers to their community. Rabbi Mona Alfie was busy preparing for evening Shabbat services at Congregation B'nai Israel when her phone rang. It's not the ideal time to call a rabbi on a Friday afternoon, but we have a situation and we could use your help. The situation was that some Latin American migrants had been left outside an office building in downtown Sacramento. Help looked like making sure that every person had a safe place to stay, making sure that they had food to eat and had clean clothing. These people had been put on a plane without anything, not even a change of clothing, a toothbrush, not even knowing where they were going. In the following days, the story became clearer. Someone in El Paso, at the behest of the Florida governor, had recruited these 20- and 30-somethings with the promise of jobs and legal help to board a plane. But after dropping them off, that person disappeared. Alfie says the religious imperative was clear. Our most important holiday is Passover. And from that holiday and over and over in the Bible, we're taught... Because we were strangers in the land of Egypt, we have a special obligation to help the stranger. 36 different times in the Torah, we are commanded about loving the stranger, helping the stranger. There should be one law for the stranger and the homeborn. Since the arrival of the 36 new Sacramento residents, a coalition of congregations, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, have come together to help them settle in. There are costs to this work, time, energy, and money, things nobody planned for. On a recent Thursday afternoon, the migrants gathered at Parkside Community Church to pick up English-language workbooks. Among them was 21-year-old Ofer from Venezuela. He describes a harrowing journey of more than two months walking, jumping on buses, hitching rides. Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. Ecuador, Colombia, Panama. Crossing border after border to reach the U.S. Guatemala, Mexico, Ofer asked that we only use his first name because he fears for his family's safety. He says he hopes to work to make money so he can help his mother survive the economic and political chaos of Venezuela. 
And one of the people determined to ease Ofer's way here is Gabby Trejo, who rallied some 30 congregations to help the migrants. Whatever the intention was of why they were sent here to our community, the community has responded overwhelmingly with love and support. Trejo is with the faith-based community organizing group Sacramento Area Congregations Together. The work with the migrants has allowed us to create a vessel for people in the community who are tired of seeing the humanity and immigrants being stripped away, that desire a world where people are seen with dignity and respect. This is exactly what Jesus would teach us to do. Jocelyn Moore started attending Parkside Church in the third grade. Now, the mother of six who works in education is spending her summer helping the migrants learn English. We're supposed to welcome refugees and strangers. I mean, it's all about hospitality and welcoming and not maybe the whole narrative of building walls and keeping people out. But this hospitality has its costs, costs borne largely by these congregations rather than the city or state governments. And Moore's pastor, Rajiv Rambab, says that kind of hospitality is central to ministry at Parkside Church. Congregational life, communal life, gives you a vehicle to get good at this sort of thing. And it gives you a familiarity and trust with a team of people who are ready to spring into action when the need arises. Rembab says offering beds and meals and clothing and quarters for laundry lies at the heart of Christianity. We as people of faith just know our calling, one of the things we're mandated, is to love our neighbors. At Trinity Episcopal Cathedral downtown, that love takes the form of donated shoes and clothing. Wearing a new-to-her pink and white striped shirt is 34-year-old Andrena from Venezuela. She also asks that we use only her first name because she still fears for her safety. Andrena says throughout her journey to the U.S., police demanded money to let her pass, money she didn't have. Stories like that, fleeing home without cash, arriving in a foreign land, spurred Trinity Cathedral member Shireen Miles to action. Today, I took three young guys out to enroll in English as a second language classes. One of the other things I've been working on recently is rounding up bicycles. So the migrants can get around town. But Miles is also thinking beyond the immediate needs of her three dozen new neighbors. She's exhausted by the human cost of polarization over immigration. Why don't the governors of the red states sit down with the governors of the blue states and the federal administration and try to figure out a better solution for what is a big challenge for all of us? And instead of just dropping off groups of human beings in some place where they had no idea where they were going. Miles has worshipped at Trinity Cathedral for nearly three decades. And recently, some new banners showed up in the sanctuary here. Matthew Woodward, dean of the cathedral, reads one of them aloud. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that's Micah 6.8. The migrant's arrival reminds him of a story from the Gospel of Matthew. Where Jesus says to the disciples, you fed me, you gave me water, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you sheltered me. And then everyone around him, because he's talking in riddles, says, what are you talking about? When did we do that? Uh, We never did that. He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Which illustrates, Woodward says, the centrality of caring for migrants. I think some of the politics dehumanizes people. And I can confidently say that the faith 
partners that I work with really, really want to invest people with dignity. The undignified way these strangers arrived in Sacramento saddens Woodward. But, he says, as a person of faith living in a polarized world, the gospel transforms compassion into courage. And I will try not to be drawn on the politics, but if caring for your neighbor is a political act, then it's a political act, and it's still the right thing to do. The cost of discipleship, says Woodward, when neighbors are in need. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Sacramento. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies tonight. Cool temperatures around 60 degrees. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny with highs in the low 80s and looks like showers and thunderstorms Friday with temperatures in the 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app.